Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation 1. Revelation 1, looking at verses 17 through 20, finishing chapter 1 this morning. We step back into the book. Uh, last time we were together, we, we were in chapter 1. However, uh, we had a week in between uh, due to weather. So uh, a refresher. Last week, we particularly focused in on this exhortation, a reminder that the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is not just a book of information, it is a book of instruction. And so it is incumbent upon us to learn. Uh, thus we read and we were exhorted the blessing upon those in verse 3 who read and who hear and who keep the things written in this book. Certain things are informational, but there is a necessity, there is a compulsion that we would keep the words of this book. So we ought to be looking for instruction. We ought to be looking for instruction. And we're going to learn today more about both the writer and the author of this book. We're going to set that, that important foundation for all of the information and instruction that we're going to receive. What is it about? Why? What's the point? Who is it about? Who is it to? All, all of these things we're going to cover this week. And you're there in Revelation chapter 1. We pick up in verse 7. And the Bible says this, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. That Jesus is coming again is the grand presupposition of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. This verse sets the foundation that what are we thinking about? What are we expecting? What is this about? It is about the fact that Jesus is coming again. This is the great hope of the church. This is the great doom of the unbelieving world. This is the presupposition that's rooted in Jesus' promises made in the first generation uh, to his followers. So Jesus writes in John 14, verses 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus called upon his disciples to not be troubled in heart or in mind. He did this seeking to prepare them for the inevitable, that their hearts might be troubled in Jesus' absence, that as Jesus would ascend unto the Father, they would then be troubled because he was not there anymore. He was not walking with them. He was not talking with them physically. They would be troubled. Because in this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. That they would be persecuted. That they would be cast out. That they would be rejected. That there would be trouble. But he says, don't let your heart be troubled but rather be strengthened by the promise that this same Lord who went away, went away not to abandon us, but to prepare a place for us. There's a big difference, isn't there? Between somebody leaving and you don't know why, or somebody leaving and saying, I don't know if I'll see you again, and somebody leaving and saying, I'm going ahead of you, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to make it exactly what it needs to be for you. And while I'm gone, I'm thinking of you. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you with me. I think of uh, my, my little girls uh, from time to time enjoy reading the, the, the Little House on the Prairie stories. And I think of a time in our history when the father would leave the family and would go to establish a home, build a home, settle a piece of property, get things rolling, and then write back to his family or go back to his family and say, now I have prepared the place. Now come with me. Come to the place that I have prepared for you. And so that absence is not an absence of abandonment. It's an absence of longing. It's an absence of anticipation. It's an absence of excitement. It is yet an absence. So not always a, a, a thing that we want, 
but it's an absence unto an end. Don't let your heart be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. You are on my mind, though you are not with me in person. We find a similar promise given on the day, the very day Jesus ascended into heaven, recorded in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And when he had spoken these things, giving them instruction, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, they were watching Jesus ascend from the Mount of Olives into heaven. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heavens? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He's coming again. Jesus is coming again. The sure return of Jesus Christ, and not just his return, but his return for us, his return for his own, is the essential hope of the Christian church. If our Savior is not alive, if he is not at the right hand of the Father, if he is not coming back for his own, well then, we are of all men most miserable. But he is risen from the dead. He is alive. He's ascended into heaven. And he has gone not to abandon us, but to prepare a place for us. Such is the importance of the statement that we read in verse 7. It reminds us that Jesus is returning. He's returning publicly. He's returning bodily. That every eye shall see him return. That those who pierced him, a reference we'll see in just a moment to the people of Israel, will see him and know him. And that all those who are of the earth not being found in Christ, will wail because of him. This reference to the piercing is very important to us because it sets a prophetic link that we need to have. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, we read this. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Here we find a statement made in prophecy in a very important section of prophecy that tells us that the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem would look upon me, God speaking here, whom they have pierced and mourn for him. An interesting change, isn't it? from me to him. An interesting change of pronoun reference that recognizes that, that, that they shall mourn for me, God, but him, the representative of God, who is the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. Within this passage, there are other events which give us insight into the state of the world, into the state of Israel at the time that these events come about. But the reason why this is so important that we see this verse in Revelation chapter 1 is because there's another time in the Bible where the Bible says this passage is fulfilled. And that time is at Jesus' first advent during his crucifixion. In John chapter 19, verses 34 through 37, we read this. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. They were separated, indicating that he was in fact dead. Uh, um, biologically, the blood and the water in the blood, the, the, they separate very quickly upon death. And he, and he saw that it, uh, excuse me, and he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look upon him whom they pierce. So we have a direct link here. John himself, even testifying that this is a fulfillment of scripture, testifying under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that Zechariah 12.10 was fulfilled in Christ's first advent as he hung upon the cross. But the problem is that if you read the events surrounding Zechariah 12, verse 10, if you read the rest of Zechariah 12, the geopolitical events do not mirror Jesus' day. It says that the whole world will hate Israel in that day. Well, that wasn't exactly the case in the day of Jesus' first death, uh, his first advent and his death, excuse me. It, it says in that time that, that the house of David will be established. Well, the house of David, actually autonomous Israel is not even a thing 
in Jesus' day. They are simply a subsidiary of the Roman government of the Roman world. And so this leaves a question in our minds, well, are we supposed to try to find a means by which to impose Zechariah 12 on the day that Jesus died, or is there something more? Those of you that have been following this series from the beginning, uh, you understand that dual fulfillment is a very valid prophetic idea, that a fulfillment takes place twice in history. The first time it takes place, it is not full. It is not complete. The second time it takes place, it will be complete. And oftentimes we see dual fulfillment where we can look back in history to see one and looking back in history and seeing the minimal fulfillment allows us to look ahead in history and be fully confident that the full fulfillment is coming. We saw this with Antiochus Epiphanes, right? And then Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes, he went into the temple uh, in 168 BC. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. He erected an image of Zeus. They called him in the Maccabees the abomination of desolation. But here's the problem. It couldn't have been the fullest outworking of that prophecy because the Bible says that the man who will do it will come out of the fourth kingdom and Antiochus is clearly out of the third kingdom in Daniel's prophecies. He's out of Greece, Syria, as, a sub, sub, um, as an offshoot of the Grecian Empire and Alexander the Great. He's not out of Rome. And Antichrist is coming out of Rome. And that's the one that would perform the abomination of desolation. We see Jesus confirm that in Matthew when he says that the abomination of desolation was yet future. This same idea here comes to pass. In Jesus' first advent, a subset of the Jews looked upon him whom the Jews had pierced and mourned for him. But it's not a full acknowledgement. It's not a full mourning. It is not a full realization of that prophecy. How do we know that? We know that because of verse 7. We know that because of Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, which says that those that pierce him will see him. Connecting this prophetic revelation to Zechariah chapter 12. So John says at the end of this verse, even so, amen. That word amen meaning truly, let it be so, verily, means let it be established. Even so, even as he comes and, and those that see him, who, who pierced him, that would be the nation of Israel, will mourn for him. Even as the, the kindreds of the earth will wail because of him. John says, even so, let it be so. We can be confident. We can have this confidence. We can have this hope. Because he's gone to prepare a place for us. For we who are in Christ, his coming again is not one of dread. His coming again is not one of mourning. It is of joy. It is of redemption. It is of victory. And we can be confident of this because of who Jesus is. This is what we find in verse 8. The one who's writing here, the author himself says, I am Alpha and Omega the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. The Lord speaks here and claims to be Alpha and Omega, beginning and ending. This is not an uncommon way for us to describe God. It's important to know what it means, therefore. Fortunately, the Lord interprets it for himself. What does it mean when he says, I am Alpha and Omega? He says here that it means that he is the beginning and the ending, that he is the first and the last. We'll even see that statement in just a couple of verses. Uh, there are 24 letters in the Greek alphabet, and it begins with the letter alpha, and it ends with the letter omega. If I told you that I know something from A to Z, from beginning to end, right? If I say I know something from A to Z, the idea behind that figure of speech is that I know it very well. I know it backward and forward. I know everything about it, more or less that I am an expert on the subject, right? The same idea here, alpha and omega, A to Z, the beginning to the end. But notice the Lord doesn't say that he knows something from beginning to end. It says that he is from beginning to end. The statement is one of eternality, that the Lord was at the beginning and the Lord will be at the end, that where things began, God already was, that where things end, God still will be. 
It's a statement of control. It's a statement of sovereignty. It's a statement of presence. It's a statement of power. It's a statement of eternality. Before anything was, the Lord was. Before, uh, after everything is, the Lord will be. And take note, this does not demand that God had a beginning, only that he existed at the beginning. God uses this, this language to help us understand that he was here before us, but also that he isn't going anywhere. Humanity cannot just bury their heads in the sand, clench their teeth, and wait for God to go away. Sometimes we do that, right? My children uh, here, uh, they, they have some stories that they're listening to, Bible stories and whatnot, and every once in a while there's kind of a there's a, um, a scary part and they might do something like plug their ears for a moment and wait for the scary part to go away and then they'll, they'll, they'll unplug their ears and continue listening to the story. We can't just do that. We can't just plug our ears until God fades off into the, in, 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 into the distance and then uh, come back out on the other end and get back to life as it stands. God isn't going away. And as we continue to learn, we'll find that this statement not only reminds us that God is, but it reminds us that all of life and history points to him. God is not just in history. He is not just before history and after history. He is the purpose of history. He is the essence of time and space. He's the author of creation. God is, and God was, and God is to come. He is today. He was before us. He will be after us. He was before time. He will be after time. He is. He was. And he is to come. And what is he? Was he and is to come? The Almighty. The Almighty. In every generation, from the first creation of the first man to the death of the last man, God is the Almighty. None can resist him. None can outlast him. So it might behoove us to get on his side. Now, to this point, the one of whom we have been reading, John obviously introduced himself, we'll find more about him in a moment, but the one of whom we've been reading is God, the Lord. We have connected him quite deeply to Old Testament ideas of the first and the last, to Jehovah God. We don't, from the passage thus far, though, have any deeper understanding of the one that we are hearing about other than to know that he is God. We'll get more specific in our context, in our text today. But now it's time to consider the penman of the book a little bit more. We've already seen that John, verse 4, is the one who wrote to these seven churches. The author, as with every book of our Bible, the author is God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed. The penman of this particular book, as we've talked about him already, is John. So we read in verse 9, I, John who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the penman of this book is John the Apostle. We mentioned last time, not John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was killed before Jesus was even crucified. This is John the Apostle, the disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who was at his cross, uh, the, the only disciple that, that, um, that was there actually for his crucifixion, um, the one who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, the one who writes the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And he introduces himself in several ways. He first introduces himself as your brother and companion in tribulation. Now remember, he is writing to the seven churches, right? So the your there are the seven churches. He is the brother, the brother of the brethren, of the seven churches. And this idea, he acknowledges companionship along two lines, uh, three lines really. First, he is a companion with them in faith. They are brothers in Christ. They, are all, they all name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have all been named the sons of God, 1 John 1, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. He has that power. He is the child of God. They are the children of God. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, I am your brother. And he says, I am also your companion in 
tribulation. That word tribulation is used 43 times in the New Testament, and it's, import, it's, it's a very important word for us. It's not uh, somewhat of a controversial word in some ways, depending on uh, who you talk to about end times events. Uh, but it is a very important word in these early weeks of consideration especially. It literally means pressure or pressing. It, it, it speaks of oppression. It speaks of tribulation. It speaks of uh, anguish. It regularly carries that idea of affliction. A heavy connotation, as we consider this word, of man-to-man evil. It, literally, uh, it, it, it speaks most, most regularly. As a matter of fact, only one time I could find in Scripture where there's a, a confident interpretation otherwise of man-to-man problems, of the, the, the trials that we have in this world, um, of men purposefully attacking other men, or of bad circumstances that arise in life. Um, widows are said to be in affliction because, they, uh, because their, their husband, their provider is gone. Um, and so the church is called to, uh, as a matter of fact, James says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. That word affliction is that same word, pressure, tribulation, anguish, oppression, affliction to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. So there's a hard thing that's come upon them. That's the nature of this word. Also, um, persecution. Persecution, the majority of the times this word is used, it's used to speak of persecution. That because of the faith, people are harming you. People are, are um, um, casting you out. People are abandoning you. Or, or people are martyring uh, you and your loved ones. That word is that word here, Affliction. There is one time, however, in Romans chapter 2, verse 9, where the Bible says that God will lay tribulation upon the unbelievers, and uh, it speaks about God's wrath against evildoers because they've asked for it, because they've rejected Christ. And so we see that one time, but of the 47, or 43 times, excuse me, there's only that one time where I think we can, we, we can at least confidently say that it's God bringing the tribulation as, to, uh, as opposed to perhaps at, at the very least God allowing for tribulation. Uh, and I mentioned these in passing now. We're going to uh, talk about this more, particularly, again, when we get to theories about the rapture. Uh, third, he said he's a companion in the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ. We spoke in our preparation message on the idea of a kingdom. We actually spent an entire message focused on the kingdom and the kingdom conflict. A kingdom demands three things a right to rule, a realm over which to rule, and the exercise of that right to rule over the realm. When John states that he is a companion in the kingdom, he states that he, like they, like the others in the church, acknowledge Jesus' authority and power unto his kingdom, that they are looking for his kingdom, that they are anticipating his kingdom, that he is a companion with them in waiting for the patience of Jesus Christ waiting for the kingdom to come about. We too are companions in all of these ways. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a companion of faith. You are a companion in pressure, in tribulation, in affliction to whatever degree. Uh, Your claims of Christ and your following Christ has asked that of you. And you are a companion in the patience of Jesus Christ as we await His kingdom which is to come. Now, the reality of this companionship holds more weight when we read about John as he writes these words. He tells us that he is very much a companion in tribulation as he is writing these words from the island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was at this time a prisoner of conscience, a religious prisoner, as he's writing these words. The island of Patmos is an island about 10 miles long and 5 miles broad along uh, the, the coast here. We would see the coast. We, we see it below just south and east of, of Greece and west of what we call Turkey. Today, it's actually a vacation island. In Roman times, this island was one of several places that we would call a penal colony a place of exile where they drop you off on this island and you are there because, in the case of Patmos, you're a political or, or a, a religious dissident. Tradition states that John was banished to the island because of the testimony of Jesus Christ in about 95 A.D. 
This would have been in the 14th year of the reign of Domitian. And he was there for the better part of a year before returning in 96 AD when Domitian was assassinated and uh, Nerva took his place as emperor. And so he was not necessarily there for very long, at least by church tradition. However, it was during the time that he was, he was here on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus Christ because of his preaching of the word of God. It was during this time that he had a vision. So verse 10 tells us, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. There are two possible interpretations here of what it means that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. It depends on what the Lord's day is meant to mean. And it's a little tricky because this is the only time in the Bible where this phrase, the Lord's day, is actually mentioned. Now, there are some that believe that when it says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, this means that he was worshiping uh, effectively on a Sunday. We call Sunday today, characteristically, the Lord's Day. Uh, and this is by tradition, going back by record as, as far back as some 170 AD. In 170 AD, we have a record of them calling the first day of the week the Lord's Day, the day that we now call Sunday. And so many believe that, um, that when John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, that means that he was worshiping on the first day of the week, which... Um, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, was a day that they characteristically met in the, in the early church. And he calls it the Lord's Day and that he's telling these churches that on that particular day, the first day of the week, he uh, had the Spirit come upon him and he began to see these visions. Uh, now, again, this is, this is entirely plausible as 170 AD is only about 75 years after John is writing this, right? And 75 years after John is writing this, we see written proof that, um, that the first day of the week was called the Lord's Day. However, if we're just comparing Scripture with Scripture, we don't really have that proof. There's nowhere in the Bible where the first day of the week is called the Lord's Day. And I've said this before. I think that, the, the, that scholarship is a very valuable thing. That as we read of our, our archaeological findings and as we find old documents and what they tell us about the Word of God, that these things are valuable. But I am always careful. I'm always careful when I hinge an interpretation of Scripture on something that is not in Scripture. And the reason why is because we know that God intends His Word to be understood. And because we know that God intends His Word to be understood... The idea that something that John is saying about setting up the, the, the setting for, for his vision um, is, has no precedent in the Word of God is iffy, right? Especially if there's another explanation. And this is what I would encourage you to do, is if there's an explanation for something in Scripture, and obviously in some ways we're splitting hairs here, right? But if there's an explanation and the only, or the, the only source of that explanation is extra-biblical, well, you can go with that explanation, that's fine. But I would also encourage you that if there is a biblically-founded explanation, and these two explanations are contrary one to another, that you would at least give a little extra weight of consideration to the one where you can go back in your Bible and you can find it, because we know that this is one unified book, that the Bible is the best commentary on itself, and that if God wanted the people in John's day to understand, and then the people of every generation to understand what John was saying, and if, if this matters in that context, then we would assume that God would give us the keys in his word, the part that is preserved, the part that's not going away, in order to understand his word better. Now, that being said, is there another explanation for this phrase, the Lord's Day? I mentioned already that it is not found in Scripture, the Lord's Day. But something that is found regularly in Scripture is a phrase, the Day of the Lord. And the Day of the Lord is found all over the place in Scripture, particularly as it relates to end times, right? The Day of the Lord is the end. 
And again, there's a debate about when the day of the Lord is. Some believers think it's the entire seven years, the entire 70th week of Daniel. Some believe it's only half of that. Some believe it's only uh, um, an undisclosed portion of that at the end. Some believe it's only the day proper when Jesus returns. And we could have that debate. That debate is, is valid for another day. However, it the day of the Lord is something that we find throughout Scripture, and we know that the revelation of Jesus Christ is a book that's speaking about the day of the Lord. So the second possibility is that when John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he was not telling you the day upon which he was in the Spirit, but rather the day that he was seeing in the Spirit, the time period that he was envisioning as he was in the Spirit. In which case, he was in the Spirit, and in the Spirit, he was present at the Lord's day, the day of the Lord. Both of those are possible. I lend my, I, I kind of lean toward the idea that it was the day of the Lord that he was seeing, but we can't make that dogmatic because, again, the Lord's day and the day of the Lord may not necessarily be the same thing, and we do have precedent 75 years later that they called the Lord's Day the first day of the week, right? Or the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. So I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, but I lend, I lend credibility personally to the idea that he's speaking of the day of the Lord, that in the Spirit, he sees the events surrounding the day of the Lord, the time of the Lord's sure return. And on this day, John sees a vision. It began with hearing a great voice as of a trumpet, there's only one other time in the Bible where we have recorded this idea of a voice that sounds like a trumpet, um, at least to this point. We'll see it again later on in the book. And that's in Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, God himself is delivering by voice the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. Before he gave them to the nation in tablet form, he actually spoke them physically to the nation. It was a day of fear and trembling. The Bible says that clouds came down, there was fire upon the mountain, and the people, we'll read in verse, uh, chapter, Exodus 19, verse 16, it came to pass on the third day, in the morning, that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. So they heard God's voice. And when they heard God's voice, they said it sounded like the voice of a trumpet and it was exceeding loud and they were terrified. After the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Bible says they were so afraid that they begged Moses, never let God speak to us in person again. You speak to him, then you speak to us. You be our mediator. But we, if he speaks to us again, we know that we are going to die. Never let that happen again. <laughs> Um, that's the idea of the sound that they heard, the sound as of a trumpet. And so the voice speaks. John hears a voice as of a trumpet, reminiscent of this time in Exodus 19, and the voice says this, verse 11, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. The voice introduces himself. Now remember, to this point, John, yeah, we've read, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, but this is John writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now we have John, if we, can, if, if we had a, a more modern Bible, you might see quotation marks around this part. This is John dictating what he heard when that vision took place. And what he heard was an introduction. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. We've already talked about that. We've seen that this is the Lord. And what thou seest, he says, write in a book. So the voice commands John to write in a book a message and to send it to the seven churches in Asia. And he lists those seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. A few things about these churches. Again, we'll talk more about them uh, beginning next week. First, note that these churches are by no means all the churches in Asia. And we've mentioned how that number seven is an important number in Scripture. It's the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. And that should cause us to perk our ears and wonder why. It should also cause us to perk our ears, uh, we'll see in a minute, that, the, that there's a mystery involved here. Second, as we noted last time, these churches were not always the biggest and most influential of the day. 
And so it's not as if these are the seven most prominent churches, and that is explicitly why John and Christ, through John, is writing to them. Third, as we noted last time, these churches are literal local churches. These are not metaphorical churches. It's not um, just a, a group. Uh, I'm, I, he, it's not as if he was writing to a town and saying all the believers in the town. He's writing to churches in these cities. Actual, autonomous, literal, functioning churches. Finally, we noted that the churches are always in the same order. The same order that they're, they're, that they're given here is the order in which God will address them in chapters 2 and 3. And again, whether or not that matters, we'll address in a couple of weeks. So at this point, John has just heard a voice, and that voice has been behind him. He, he does not see who said that. He's in the Spirit. He hears a voice behind him. I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Write these things to these churches. So we read in verses 12 through 16. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. I give you here the first of several artist renditions that we're going to see throughout the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I give you these with hesitation. I don't know if um, you, growing up in Sunday school, we don't do it here, of course, uh, this kind of a Sunday school, but if you add flannel graph, if a lot of you remember flannel graph, nothing wrong with flannel graph. But one of the things about flannel graph, you know, you put that thing up, and you've got all these children that are listening, and you say, and then Peter was on the boat, and Jesus was on the shore, and the fish, and this and that, right? And you're slapping them on there, you're telling the story. And next thing you know, you're, the very essence of how you think about these things is in flannel graph. So as you get older, you know, Jesus is still the, the long-haired white dude, and we can presume that he wasn't actually a long-haired white dude because he was Jewish, and they didn't wear their hair long. And so um, we would presume that that was not accurate, and yet that's what's in our minds uh, because of things like the flannel graph and, of course, Renaissance art and all of those things. So I am hesitant to give you these things because it sets a picture, right? Uh, it, sets a, 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 it sets an image. However, when it comes to what we've called apocalyptic literature, this stuff can get a little bit messy, a little bit confusing. And while the focus of the images that we see in apocalyptic literature is not the images themselves, but what they represent, sometimes it's hard to understand the representations if you don't have some sort of visual of what they are. So as I give you this first of many, I mean, this one, he doesn't have anything coming out of his mouth. Um, there were other ones that had, you know, that are a bit more literal swords coming out of mouths and whatnot, but there, was, there wasn't any of them I could find that I felt like this one is just the best one, the, 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 the perfect representation. Um, and uh, I might in the future get a little more literal because at least if they're a little more literal, then they divorce it from reality. You know, if a sword's actually coming out of a guy's mouth, then you don't that picture might not resonate with you as realistic quite as much, right? But here's what we see. We see one like the Son of Man standing in between seven candlesticks. They're individual candlesticks. It's not seven branches of one candlestick here. Now, there are some of these depictions that show seven, effectively like seven menorahs or seven lampstands. That's fine, too. Um, this one, the seven candlesticks, there's one like on the Son of Man. He has uh, around his paps, which would be his chest, he has this, this um, gold girdle. Um, his garment is down to his feet. His feet are uh, like flames of fire. The idea would be the brightness of the brass that's off of them. His eyes are like flames of fire. A sword is coming out of his mouth. He has in his right hand seven stars. His hair is white as wool. And this is what we see here. Again, focus in on what this is all supposed to mean 
not explicitly what you're seeing. So he says in verse 12 that he saw seven golden candlesticks. Verse 13, in the middle of these was one like the Son of Man. Now, Jesus regularly called himself the Son of Man while upon this earth. It's important to note in the Greek that it's not actually the Son of Man. There is no article, for those of you that are here on Tuesday nights, uh, make, if, if it's articular, if it has the article, then the emphasis is upon his identity. In this case, there is no article, which means the emphasis is not upon his identity. It's upon his essence, his quality, or his character. So the point is not that this is the Son of Man, though we know that it is because this one has called himself Alpha and Omega, first and the last, right? So we know it's Jesus. We know it. But the emphasis is upon the fact that there is a man, a man, a human form, a human standing in the midst of these seven candlesticks. Verse 14. Oh, well, and then it says as well, before we get on to verse 14, that his garment went down to his feet, as we mentioned, around his chest is the golden girdle. Verse 14 states his hair is, uh, of his head is white like wool, white as snow. Daniel 7 records an event worth considering at this moment. A, a great deal of the description of this man actually is similar in reflection to what the Bible speaks of on several times, uh, several accounts in Daniel. In the story of the, the, the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, when they're thrown into the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar saw four men in the furnace, right? He said, one of them is like the Son of God or, the, or, or, or a Son of God. A similar idea to this concept of a Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet sees a vision of one who is called the Son of Man, and the Son of Man be stands before the Ancient of Days, a name given to the Eternal One. And in the context, we know that this is a vision of Jesus standing before the Father. The Ancient of Days is described in Daniel 7 verse 9 as having a garment white as snow and as having hair of pure wool. Once again, the emphasis there is upon the, the, his age, that his hair is white because he is the Ancient of Days, because he is the one who was and is and is who, to come. He is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's that sign of age. That's what it's intended to represent. It describes his eyes as a flame of fire. It describes his feet like fine brass as if on fire. They look like glowing metal, perhaps. Uh, brass and fire in the scriptures are often signs of judgment. The brazen altar was the altar upon which the animals were killed. The brazen laver was the laver within which they would wash themselves, the priests, before going into the tabernacle. The brass is one of those metals that often is characterized in God's economy with judgment. And of course, fire, we know, is often um, in God's economy characterized uh, or, or indicative of judgment as well. And then the Bible says that his voice was as the voice of, uh, as the sound, excuse me, of many waters. I mentioned some parallels to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. There are some parallels here to an angelic being which Daniel saw in Daniel 10, verse 6. Daniel describes an angelic being as having the body like beryl, uh, which is a gem mineral of emerald, of aquamarine, and of morganite. And his face is described as looking like lightning for brightness, like it's on fire. His eyes in Daniel 10, like lamps of fire. His arms and feet were like polished brass, and his voice was like the voice of a multitude. A very similar idea in Daniel 10 to the one that we find here. And as we walk through the Bible, we put some of these images together, uh, and, and fire and the white hair and the brass. And so we see that this is symbolic, that God is representing himself to John in a way to show himself. He's coming, and he's standing in the midst of these seven candlesticks right now with judgment, with purity, and with eternality. Verse 16 says that there were seven stars in his right hand, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like that of the sun. We'll see the significance of the seven stars in a moment. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, likens the word of God to a two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrow of the bones. So we would recognize that illusion there that the one who is standing in the midst of these seven candlesticks is speaking the words of God. 
He has the word of God coming out of his mouth. Now, in all, the whole vision would have been overwhelming and splendid, no doubt. John sees this vision. He sees the brightness of this person. He sees these candlesticks. You can imagine the tremendous impact of this upon him. And his response in verse 17 is as such. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. So John is overwhelmed by the glory of this vision, and he just falls to his face. And the Son of Man then speaks, lays his right hand upon John, and says, I'm the first and the last. Now, once again, if you need any help in understanding that the, the vision is to... to symbolized to John some things. That right hand had the stars before. He didn't just drop them, right, to put his hand on, on John. It was a vision. John saw these things because it was the representation that Jesus wanted him to have of himself. So he didn't have to drop the stars to touch John, anything like that, right? So, so again, re- remember that we're not caught up on the physical things that we're seeing. We're caught up on what they intend to represent, So the Son of Man speaks, and he says, first off, I am the first and the last. So this Son of Man has now identified himself as the one who is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. He has identified himself as the ever-existent one. The one that we know from Isaiah is the Lord God, Jehovah. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4. Who hath wrought and done it, calling this generation from the beginning, I the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called, I am he, I am the first, I also am the last. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the first and the last. Now, when you seek capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible, you, the, every time you see that in your Bible, the word behind that is the word Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on who you talk to, right? It is the word for the covenant name of God given on the Mount Sinai to Moses. I am that I am. That is the name that was given to him, the covenant name of God. Anytime you see capital G, capital O, capital D, it is also Jehovah or Yahweh. Why would they put Why would it be God instead of Lord? Well, because there are times where in the Bible he says, I am the Lord God. Well, you can't do Lord, Lord, right? And Lord Adonai is capital L, lowercase o-r-d. And so they could do capital L, lowercase o-r-d, then capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But that would just be meh. So they do Lord God, and then they capitalize God to let you know that it is Adonai Jehovah, Lord as Adonai, Jehovah as God instead of Lord. It's the same thing, though. If you see it in all caps, it's the name Jehovah. It's the one given. It's the ever-existent God. It is the God of the Old Testament. So what is this son of man standing between the candlesticks saying? He's saying he is Jehovah God. This is what we're getting to here. This is Jehovah God. Well, then, who's Jesus? Well, it's Jesus, too. Notice what he says next. Oh, excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm ahead on a slide here. Um, verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of hell and of death. So we've said before, Jehovah is the Godhead. Jehovah, Jesus, is Lord. He is Jehovah God. He identifies himself as Jehovah God. He says that he is the first and the last, identifying himself with Jehovah. And then the same one that says he's Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, first and last, says, I am the one that lived and was dead and is alive forevermore. There is no ambiguity about who is speaking to him. Who is the one that liveth and was dead and is alive forevermore? Romans chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. He, he, he dieth no more. He's the one that liveth and was dead and liveth for, and is alive forevermore. This is Jesus. 
This is a good reminder that Jesus is Jehovah. If you have a Jehovah's Witness, if you have a Mormon that is confused about this, you can take him to these passages and say, Jesus is the one that is saying that he's Jehovah. To this end, there is no doubt that this is Jesus of Nazareth that we're speaking of here. And why is this important? Well, it tells us the character of the living Christ, of course, but it also tells us of the authority of these words, that the one from whom these words are coming is the one and the only one who has the authority to bring these things to pass. Also, there's a tremendous significance for the Jewish reader, reminded that the one who is coming, the one who has said these things, is their Jehovah God and is Jesus Christ, their Jehovah God. Now, there were, however, a couple of parts of this vision that were not about Christ proper. Jesus saw the Son of Man, but he also saw seven stars, right, and seven candlesticks. The Lord goes on to explain these, setting the foundation for the messages to the churches over the next couple of weeks. Verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars, are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So John is commanded to write the things which he has seen. That would be the content of chapter 1, the things of the vision. Then he's also said to write the things which now are. Presumably that would be the state of things as they existed in that day. We'll see that in chapters 2 and 3 as John writes physical letters of commendation and rebuke to the physical churches of that day. And then he said to write the things which shall be hereafter. And beginning in chapter 4, we see everything becomes prophetic, things that have yet to take place, things that have yet to come to pass, the things which shall take place at the end of the world. And so within this verse, verse 19, we get this outline. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. And again, we might even liken this, as we talked about last week, to John writing about Jesus' life and ministry, and then the current day into the churches, and then to the future, to his coming again. I'd like to take a brief, brief moment here to introduce the biblical concept of a mystery. We've not covered it very much yet. This word mystery is used 27 times in the New Testament, 21 in the epistles, Whenever you run across this Greek word, you will find that it speaks of some truth that was unrevealed in the past and yet is now being revealed to the church. It is something that was unannounced, unknown, unthought of before, and now it is being made manifest or being made known. No previous divine biblical revelation had disclosed a, 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 these truths, but then it is revealed to God's people. Various mysteries are presented throughout the New Testament. I'm going to give you some. This is my list. Uh, if you've read a different list that has more, has less, whatever, um, that's fine. But the mysteries as we see them, well, we see the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He gives a bunch of parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. And then he, he, the, his disciples say, why do you speak in parables? And he says, because it is given unto you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, but not unto the unbeliever. And so he speaks in parables for that reason. Uh, we see the mystery of Israel's temporary blindness to Messiah, spoken of in uh, Romans 11, verse 25. The mystery of the church age. There's a bunch of these where Paul calls the church a mystery. The church was not an announced institution in the Old Testament. It was an entire mystery. It, it, was, it was completely unknown. It was a divine truth that God would unite Gentiles and Jews together in this body called the church. It was a, a divine mystery until the until it was brought about. Um, the mystery of the gospel or godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And then he speaks of the gospel. The gospel is called a mystery. Uh, the mystery of the rapture of the church. Uh, Paul speaks of this one in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, right? The mystery of the rapture and the resurrection in a blink of an eye, in a moment, at the last trump. Uh, the mystery of iniquity doth already work, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. The mystery of the seven stars, that's the one we're talking about today. The mystery of God in uh, Revelation 10, verse 7. Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17, 5. And then the mystery of the woman that rideth the beast in Revelation 17, 
7. And so we see these mysteries here that are given. Um, some of these might overlap to where you could take you know, one and merge categories and whatnot. That's fine. I've put some together that seemed obvious, even though they have a slightly different statement to them. Uh, some of these remain a mystery still. Babylon is yet a mystery. Uh, we've got some ideas about who mystery Babylon is, but it's yet a mystery. Um, the concept, though, throughout the New Testament is that these are, these are spiritual truths that had before remained unknown, but now are being made manifest. And one of these mysteries is the mystery of the seven stars. The answer to this mystery, John says the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks are the seven churches themselves. The seven candlesticks are the seven churches of Asia that are being written to. Jesus is in the midst of them and he's holding in his hand the seven angels of those seven churches. Now, there's a question as to what these angels are. Just because the mystery is revealed that they are the angels to the seven churches does not mean we know what those are. There's two primary interpretations of the angels of the seven churches. The word angel here is a word which simply means messenger. That's what the word angel means. It means messenger. Generally speaking, we would say it's a divine messenger. It's used 181 times in the New Testament, and an overwhelming number of times the word is used, it speaks of an angelic spiritual being, a angelic divine messenger. However, there are several times in the New Testament where the word without question is speaking of a human mortal messenger, not a divine supernatural messenger. One of these times, well, we see it's used of John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, and Mark chapter 1, verse 2. For this is he of whom it is written, Matthew 11, verse 10, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee, speaking of John the Baptist. And then Mark chapter 1, verse 2, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. So John the Baptist um, is called the messenger, the angel that would be sent before the face of the nation. Um, it was also used of John in Luke chapter 7, verse 24 and verse 27. It is used of messengers which Jesus sent to the villages. Remember when, when uh, Jesus was going through all the villages in Galilee after he'd sent his disciples? And in Luke chapter 9, verse 52, it says that he sent messengers before him into the cities to prepare the way. The word messengers there is angels. James also uses this word to speak of the two spies that entered Jericho in the days of Rahab. James 2 verse 25 says, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers, that word is angel, and had sent them out another way. And these were spies of Israel. Uh, we have no indication from the Old Testament that they were anything other than men of the nation of Israel. The word angels is used there. To this end... It is not unheard of for us to understand angels in a physical context. And to that end, there are two primary interpretations of what it means that, Jesus, that, that there are seven, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches in Asia. First, some believe that these stars are heavenly representatives assigned to each local church or assigned to each earthly church. Now, that, the, the idea there would be that each church has an, a divine, spiritual, angelic being that is uh, perhaps commissioned with its blessing, well-being, guiding, those sorts of things. Um, there are a couple of problems with this naturally in my heart and mind. Uh, first is that the Bible certainly uh, makes it clear that we are not beholden to some sort of intermediary between us and God. In fact, we are, as the church of God, the body of Christ, and Christ is our head. Uh, Christ is the church's head, and so at the very least, we know that there's no way this angelic being could mediate between God and, and man, between the church and, and Christ, because Christ is our mediator. He's our head. Uh, there's no mediator between God and man, save the man, Christ Jesus, right? And, and so there's that idea. Furthermore, the idea concerns me a little bit that chapters two and three would be written, as we'll see, they are written to the angels of the churches. Chapter 2, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write. 
Um, chapter um, 2, verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. So in each case, with each of these churches, John is actually writing unto the angel of the church. Why would John be writing a physical book to spiritual beings? And why would the spiritual beings be the one being rebuked for the shortcomings of the people that are in the church on earth? That doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. So that one just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, it's possible. It's the most normal, natural interpretation of the word angel. But I've yet to find a satisfactory um, reason as to why the angels would be the ones being written to, why the angels would be, would be the ones addressed if the angels are actual angelic beings. The other uh, possibility then, as we've talked about it, is that the angels are the earthly messengers to the churches. In other words, effectively the pastors. The, the earthly representatives, the ones who are the messengers to the churches, the one who would get up from behind the pulpit and say, thus saith the Lord through John, I'm reading you a letter from John, and he would get up and he'd read that letter. He's their messenger. I, he has something to say to you, and that makes a lot more sense to me. And there is biblical precedent for us to see the angels as human, right? As mortal representatives of God to the people. I am a divinely ordained representative of Christ to you. God has called me by his grace to do so. Um, I don't see any reason why I cannot then be called an, an, an angel to the church um, in, the, in the same manner that John or the spies or whatever else might be. We speak a message of the Lord to God's people. One way or another, that is the mystery here that is revealed that the, the seven churches are the focus, that the whole book is written to these seven churches. There's going to be an individual message to each one, and then the rest of, the, uh, rest of it is for all of them to hear. And indeed, all of, uh, really, each message is for all of them. At the end of each message, you'll hear, let, let everyone that heareth, or let him that heareth, um, regard. So it's for all of us, to be sure. Two applications as we hasten into it this, this uh, morning. Number one, I remind you, as we enter, we exit Revelation chapter 1, we enter into these messages to the churches. What is it that as, okay, these messages to the churches are going to be important. Important for us. Important for our day and age. Important for where we are today. As we step into them, as you prepare your heart for them, what do you need to remember? You need to remember your relationship to God our relationship to God, that Jesus Christ is the everlasting, almighty, unchangeable God, the one who was and is and is to come. I, I share with you Jeremiah 10 because I love the way Jeremiah writes this and God expresses this in these verses. Jeremiah says in verses uh, 6 through 7 of Jeremiah 10, For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. We who would not fear thee, O king of nations, for to thee doth it appertain, for as much as among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like unto thee. He would go on to say in verses 11 through 15, Thus shall ye say unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. There's that, that, that sound again, right? His voice is as the multitude of waters. The same description that John gave in Revelation 1. And he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. Every man is brutish in his knowledge. Every founder is confounded by the graven image for his molten image is falsehood and there is no breath in them. They are vanity and the work of errors. In the time of their visitation, they shall perish. Wise men come and go, God remains. Idols come and go, God remains. History passes, God remains. Culture changes, God remains. Nations rise and fall, God remains. And so we cry out with the psalmist, give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Jesus Christ is the everlasting, almighty, and unchangeable God. And what do we do with it? Are we going to believe it? Are we going to wrap our lives around it? Are we going to take Revelation chapter 2 and 3, 
which the warnings of the church are founded upon this declaration that he is the almighty God. And are we going to say, if this is who he's declaring himself right as he gives me this message, it's because he really wants me to listen, to, to perk my ears up and to regard what he's telling me. Secondly, Jesus Christ is the center of the church. Jesus stood in the midst of those seven candlesticks, right in the middle. And those messengers were in his right hand, the hand of power in the scripture. The right hand is the hand of power. We must never forget that the church exists by Christ, but it also exists for Christ. We are here as Christ's hands, as his feet. Christ is our head. We are his body, each of us members in particular. We don't assemble to do what we want, folks. You're not here for me. I'm not here for you. We are here for Christ. We assemble for Christ. We exist for Christ. We function for Christ. And we operate by Christ's wisdom, not our own wisdom. We operate for Christ's glory, not our own glory. We don't act according to our will. We act according to Christ's will. As a church, our purpose statement is clear. To be like Christ. To serve others in the name of Christ. To be conformed to the image of Christ. To please Christ. Because Christ is our all in all. He is the center of our essence. He's not only the purpose of the church, he is the power for the church. For without me, Jesus said in John 15, 5, ye can do nothing. Of him, to him, through him are all things. And so we read in Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him, that is Christ, should all fullness dwell. And this is where I would desire that you this morning, as a part of Legacy Baptist Church, to whatever degree you are, search yourself, your family, and search even our church. We're about to come, and be prepared to search. We're about to come into these seven letters, and each of these letters is going to have things that are good, and they're going to have things that are bad. And as we walk through them, you are going to find that our church has some things in them that are commendable. But we're also going to find that our church will also fall into the category of some things that are rebukable. And the essence of those commendations and those rebukes is this. We live for Christ. We live to please Christ. And if our church is pleasing Christ, we need to keep it up. And to whatever degree our church, as individuals, as families, and as a corporate body, is not pleasing Christ, we need to be ready to identify that, and we need to be ready to change. Our church needs to be ready to change. We as individuals need to be ready to change if that's what is necessary because we are Christ's. And if we are not here pleasing Christ, then, we, then, then we're wasting our time. We are wasting our time. So let's prepare our hearts over these, this next week that when we read chapters 2 and 3, and we're going to go somewhat slowly through them, there's a lot of content there, that we will be ready ready to receive with meekness his, his commendations and his rebukes, ready to inspect our own church and to know how we can better conform our hearts and our lives to the one who stands in our midst, to the character of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.